Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, good morning again, everybody. It's great to be with you. Uh, Again, welcome to those of you who may be new to church, maybe checking out church for the first time, perusing the spiritual marketplace. Welcome to those of you online. We're so glad to have you with us. Feel free to drop a line in the chat and uh, be engaging in that way. And kids, it's so great to see you. It's so great to have some of our families here. Uh, We are going to be jumping back into Paul's letter to the Romans on this Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, on a Sunday where we give thanks to God for who he has made us. uh, And it's really in the word that we hear from God, right? Who is God? Who are we? Who has he made us to be? And so I invite you to have a Bible open as we continue our journey in the book of Romans last week. We took a close and in-depth look at the gospel, uh, the good news of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. And and this week, we're actually getting into a text that goes into why we need salvation, what we need saving from. So open your Bible to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 16 to 25. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 911. So let's give ear, because what we're about to read is God's word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words. And Jesus, may we take these words and trust that they are given to us for our good and for your glory. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds 
to receive what you, Lord Jesus, are saying to the church today about who we are and the life you have called us to live in you. Help us, Lord, to apprehend the gospel, the good news today in a deeper way that we might worship you in all things. Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So this morning through this text, I'm just gonna explain to you where we're gonna go. We are gonna look at our purpose, we're gonna look at our problem, and we are gonna look at our redemption. Our purpose, our problem, and our redemption. And, and on the matter of purpose, have you ever tried to use something for a purpose it wasn't made for? Have you ever tried to use something for a purpose it wasn't made for? I find the flathead screwdriver is the perfect candidate to be used for things it wasn't made for. I mean, I've used a flathead for all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I've used it to change flat bike tubes. I've used it to spread grease on bearings. I mean, I've probably even used it on a camping trip to spread peanut butter on toast. I mean, that's a bit ridiculous. But still, once I uh, had to open a can of paint, and instead of, you know, rummaging in the toolbox trying to find a real paint can opener, I found the flathead, which was just readily available. And so, you know, you get your can of paint and you're doing the flathead and what happens? You nearly impale yourself, right? This is what happens when we use things for a different purpose than what it was made for. Things don't go so well. You get hurt. Things get broken. And it's the same with us as humans. When we live in a way that we weren't made to live in, when we live in ways that contradict our purpose, we fail to thrive. Uh, we get hurt and we hurt others. We experience brokenness and we inflict our brokenness on others. And our, our text tells us something today profound about what it means to be a human. It tells us our purpose, believe it or not. Check out verse 21. It says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Just a couple verses down in verse 23. It says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. The whole concept of an exchange is that you first had the thing that you are exchanging, right? And so this is saying something about us, that we had glory. We were made for glory. We were made for the glory of God. We, we had it in the beginning. We were made to live in his glory and participate in his glory by glorifying him, by acknowledging him, by giving thanks for his many gifts. I mean, on Thanksgiving, we need to know Thanksgiving is just, isn't just something we ought to do. It's something we were made for. We were created to give thanks. We were created to give glory and participate in God's glory. So let's just unpack this a sec. Glory is a very Christian word that we, you know, speak a lot of in church, but what is glory? Glory in the Old Testament refers to the weightiness of God. It refers to his impressiveness. It refers to the overwhelming force of his powerful presence. And what the New Testament does is it takes the idea of glory and adds the idea of radiance, of luminosity. 
It's the overwhelming force of God's powerful and radiant presence. Here's how uh, New Testament scholar Gerhard Kittel sums it up. He says, uh, glory is the divine and heavenly radiance. It's the loftiness and majesty of God. Glory is the best human word that we have to talk about the significance, the weightiness, the majesty, the transcendence of God that emanates from his presence. You were made for glory. You and I were made for glory. There's another thing we learn in this text about our purpose. Check out verse 25. Look there with me. It says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We were made for truth. We were made, in other words, uh, to live and act in a way that corresponds to reality. Truth is living uh, with things as they really are. We were made for glory. We were made for truth. And let me just say, under the umbrellas of those things, you can kind of include everything that is part of God, his peace, his love, his joy, his holiness, his goodness, because all of these flow from the truth of who God is. That's what we were made for. So as we take a dive into this text, I want you to hold those two things in mind. We were made for glory. We were made for truth. As Paul now takes us into our problem, and as we get into this section of the letter, you know, we might be tempted to think that you know, Paul has this rather bleak and gloomy view of humanity. But the reason he goes into such detail about our problem is because he was so convinced that we were made for more. He's so convinced that we were made for glory. We were made for the eternal purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. But we do have a problem, right? Look out in the world, there's, there's a big problem. <laughs> and here's the problem. We've made a tragic exchange. Look at verse 23 again. We already noticed that there was an exchange that took place. It says, they, humanity, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created images. And again, in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We had glory and truth. We had life in relationship with God and we exchanged it for a lesser glory, for the glory of creatures and created things and we exchanged it for a lie. Now, you might be thinking, I don't remember doing that. I didn't do that personally. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's talking about all of humanity summed up in Adam and Eve. And that's a story that we're actually gonna consider in a moment. He's talking about all of humanity summed up in Adam and Eve, but the point is, whether we personally did it or not, we've all confirmed it, right? We've all confirmed the fact that this exchange has taken place. We've all been caught up in the rebellion of Adam and Eve. So, in the Bible, the typical word that this tragic exchange is called is sin. And this text brings us into the comprehensive effects of sin on us. Notice that sin affects our minds and our hearts and our bodies, right? In verse 21, it says they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile thinking, foolish hearts. And then later on in verse 24, it says it led to the degrading of our bodies, right? Sin affects every part of us head, heart, 
and body, and therefore every part of our life, relationships, family, and work. And here's where I don't want you to tune out. Stay with me. Because if we can understand the problem, we can then understand the solution. If we can understand the problem, we can understand the solution that God has given to redeem the problem, okay? So what I want us to do is actually just rewind all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter two. Feel free to flip there because we're gonna spend a bit of time there. Uh, It's, you know, pretty easy to get there. It's like page two of the Bible. So find your way there to Genesis chapter two and let me just catch us up. So God has made the entire world. He's made it good. He's filled it with bounty and fruit and he's, he's made humanity to work in the garden of creation to make it even more beautiful, to give it order, to make it a place where life can thrive. It's this beautiful picture. And then in Genesis two sixteen, if you look at there with me or we can start in 15, 2, 15, It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then what happens is God creates Eve from Adam's rib because God in his infinite wisdom saw Adam and he said, this guy needs help. And so he makes Eve. And then if you look maybe on the next page in the beginning of chapter three, there's a new character who enters the scene. It's the snake. There is a snake in the garden. In Genesis three, verse one, it says, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice how the snake targets the mind. Notice how the snake targets the mind with deceptive ideas, with lies, particularly about God and his goodness. That's what the snake goes after. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke puts it this way, that Satan subverts obedience and distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition, what you can't do, not his provision, the bounty of what he's given. Picture the scene with me, right? There are countless trees, thousands of trees, and God says, go at it. Go at it. But there's just one that you can't eat from. And what the snake does with Adam and Eve is is he dismisses the incredible provision of God and accentuates the prohibition. What a stingy God. He's holding out on you. He's trying to keep you down. You could be great. You could be like him, knowing good and evil. And notice that the best lie is a half truth. Isn't that just always the case? The best lie is a half truth. You see, Adam and Eve were like God. What does it say in Genesis 1? That they were made in the image. Yeah, they were made in the image of God. 
They were already like God, but properly in the way that they were meant to be like God and reflect him as creature, honoring and glorifying the creator. And this is what makes the exchange all the more tragic is they don't see what God had already given them. And the snake casts a shadow in their minds about the goodness of God. And they buy the lie. And they break God's command. Can you see how this story is in Paul's mind as he writes these words to the church in Rome? Paul is saying that Adam, as the representative human, he knew God's eternal power and divine nature, but he exchanged God's truth for a lie. And therefore, humanity is without excuse. We can't plead plausible deniability on this one. And then it says, and these are hard words for our modern ears to hear, but it says in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. What does that mean? The wrath of God, it's saying, is the consequence of the tragic exchange. That we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then notice how the text repeated the word God handed them over. God handed them over. God handed them over to their sinful desires and shameful lusts. That's how God's wrath is presently revealed. And it's not a picture of God, you know, smiting people with lightning bolts out of heaven. It's a picture of God giving humanity what humanity has chosen. It's a picture of God giving humanity what humanity has chosen. Because God's love is so good and runs so deep that he won't force us to love him. He won't force us to obey him but he gives us the choice. And so the wrath of God is experienced as the unraveling effects of sin, right? Brokenness, fragmentation, anxiety, violence, heartbreak, and pain. Now I wanna call back just the effects on our minds of sin because that's where the snake aims his attack, right? On the mind, causing us to doubt the goodness of God. And ever since the fall, our minds haven't been quite right, have they? that we're easily manipulated, that we're subject to, to all kinds of distortions in our thinking. Sin affects the mind. It's what theologians call the noetic effects of sins, sins affecting the mind. And it affects our hearts. Notice how Paul turns to worship language. In verse 25, he says, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. In other words, our loves and our desires get all disordered. And we start to love things that actually aren't good for us and we start to hate the things that are good for us and will bring us life. And then it says that our bodies were degraded, that all of this kind of comes together to create this problem that we have. We have this deep problem that our thoughts are distorted by lies our hearts are distorted by idolatry and our bodies are degraded by destructive habits. Here's how John Comer puts it. He says, when we believe lies and tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them enter our muscle memory, we allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality and as a result, we struggle to thrive. Remember, this is all about thinking through how can we thrive? How can the problem be redeemed? He says, because of all this, we struggle to thrive. And then he says this, because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. Isn't that just so true? We struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. 
in the late 1970s until about 1977, there was a religious cult based in the San Diego area called Heaven's Gate. And in the spring of 1997, there was a comet. You can see it there on your screen. It was discovered by astronomers Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, and so it was called the Hale-Bopp Comet. And somehow, Heaven's Gate, this cult, came to believe that as the Hale-Bopp Comet made its way close to Earth's orbit, that a spaceship would be traveling in its wake. And so what several members of the cult did is they went out and they bought a really expensive telescope because they wanted to see the spaceship that was going to take them home to their final destination. And, And what happened is they quickly brought it back to the store and they wanted a return. And the manager asked them, why, why are you returning the telescope? And they complained that the telescope was defective because it didn't show the spaceship following the comet. It's an extreme story, right, of how vulnerable we are to our own illusions. But the harsh truth is that reality doesn't just adjust itself to our illusions, right? And probably the most powerful illusion in our Western secular society is the illusion that God is not there. It's the illusion that God is not there. Either there is no God or God is distant and he's unavailable. God's been removed from the picture. And as many of you know from non-Western countries, like just because you live as if there is no God doesn't mean you've actually pushed God out of reality. It's his reality. He's God. We are not. And this lie gets further distorted so that in our culture, we think that even if there is a God, he's not good. He's not good. But he is good. Now, it's not lost on me that when you woke up this morning on Thanksgiving Day, you were not anticipating to hear all about sin and how bad we are as humans. You probably didn't want to hear this sermon We don't like hearing about sin, right? We don't like hearing about how our minds and hearts and bodies are compromised. We're modern, intelligent, beautiful people, right? We're we're fine. There's nothing wrong with us. But here's why I think this is so hard to hear. This is hard to hear for folks in our culture, but even for us in the church, the news, the bad news about our sin is hard to hear because so deep down we want to be good, right? So deep down, we want to be good, and we want to believe that we are good. And here comes Christianity and preachers like me telling everyone how bad they are. And you're like, come on, life is hard enough as it is. Can't you just give us some good news? But this is part of the good news. And here's how. Because not only does Christianity tell us how sinful we are, but it also tells us we were made for more. We were made for glory. We were made for truth. We were made for this abundant life. And Christianity highlights the problem in order to spell out our redemption, in order to bring us to the focal point, which is where I want us to go now. Let's consider our redemption This is the center of it all, friends. This is where Paul wants to bring us, and he's gonna keep going into all these different layers of the effects of our rebellion against God for different kinds of people. But the point is, Paul wants every single person to see that yes, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie, but then the Son of God exchanged his life for ours. 
That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see God's grace, God's goodness. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and God exchanged the, son of his, the life of his son for ours. Christ has died. He's died the death that we deserve so that we might live and live in the glory of God again, right? This is what gets us back on track. We have this desire to be good and know we are good. Guess what? God did make you to be good. He made you to be good in his goodness. He made you to have life in his life. He didn't make you for death. He made you for eternal life. And here's the bottom line that when you believe in Jesus and you put your basic life trust in him, you, you repent of sin and you believe in him, the tragic exchange no longer defines your life. It's the great exchange of the cross that defines your life. That is such good news. Because the cross not only opens up the potential for forgiveness in your life, but it also breaks the power of sin in your life. Because let's face it, we're up against it. Some of you are facing dark things right now. Some of you are in the grip of things that you wonder, how can I get out of this? Maybe those things are your own disordered desires in you that are leading you time and time again into heart-rending, painful situations that you know are hurting you. But the cross of Christ has the power to break sin's power over you. It's such good news. Jesus and his cross are the way back into the life of goodness and love that we so desperately want. But here's how it works. Instead of putting our faith in our own goodness, right? And instead of getting so wrecked because the preacher's telling me I'm not good and I really want to believe I'm good, what we do is we put our faith in the goodness of Jesus and say, I'm not good, but he is. He is. We accept the verdict that the requirement has been met for us in Jesus. See, the gospel announces to us the reality at the same time that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe and more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. So what's our response today? What's our response as we go out from here on Thanksgiving Sunday and it was raining this morning, but now the sun is shining. Why don't we go out today in joyful repentance? Why don't we go out today in joyful repentance? I mean, this is the most practical way that you and I can take the reality of the exchange that happened on the cross and live it out. That each day we say, Jesus, it's about your goodness, not mine. Jesus, it's about your glory, not mine. Help me to live in your glory. Fill me with your love. Fill me with the gospel. Fill me with your spirit. And I just want to give us a question for us to consider today question for all of us to consider is this. Um, are there ways you're allowing the tragic exchange to keep defining your life? Are there ways you're allowing the tragic exchange to keep defining your life? Josh, you could just click that one up on the screen for everybody. We were made for glory. We were made to give thanks and Jesus has redeemed us so that we can live into that but are there ways we continue to exchange God's truth for a lie? Are there idols that need to be dethroned in our hearts? Are there distortions that you're nursing in your mind that are not in line with the truth of God? Let's go from here in joyful repentance. 
Let's give thanks for the good news that Jesus redeems our life and gives us the power to live a life that glorifies him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the news that you created us for such an astounding and eternal purpose that we would live in the glory of God and that we would glorify him, uh, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. And Lord Jesus, I ask that we would move out from here to worship you in all things, to live humbly, aware of your grace toward us, aware of your mercy toward us, aware of your redemption. Fill us with your spirit. Renew us, we pray, to live the kind of life you call us to live, a life of love and peace and goodness. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty and matchless name. Amen. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up as they lead us and as we continue to respond to God's word today. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.